Today, I'm talking to Isaias Hernandez, who is an environmental educator, and I found him on Instagram, where he goes by the Queer Brown Vegan, which is a pretty straight-to-the-point description of the of someone that you are. So, um, Isaias, why did you choose that name? Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much again for having me. And so, I think for me, the way that I really chose my name is as the fact that of how each one really represents who I am, right? As a person of color myself that's queer and a vegan, I think it's really important for me to recognize that my own identity has obviously shaped me for who I am and the way that I obviously navigate um, veganism. Most purport, most obviously is the fact that, um, you know, representation in environmental fields are not really diverse. And so um, obviously one can commonly agree that most environmental spaces or environmental research that we talk about is hugely dominated by white folks. And so I think by having this username is to really simply showcase the fact that I'm here and I exist. And so not necessarily going from mainstream media that often highlights uh, white environmentalists, but more about POC environmentalists in doing this type of work. Cool. So you're standing alone a little bit in that way, or at least it felt like you were at the start. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I felt like, um, you know, even myself trying to look for these spaces or looking for diversity, it always felt like it was, you know, kind of like siloed or I felt like there wasn't really that many BIPOC individuals in those spaces. So talking about your own identity, you grew up in Los Angeles, California, and you say that you grew up in a community that faced a lot of environmental injustices. Um, and I was just wondering if you could tell a little, tell me a little bit about what those were. What did you actually face when you were growing up? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I think for obviously those who are recognized or kind of know about Los Angeles being uh, this popular city or diverse, um, you know, generally myself, I grew up low income. So my parents had immigrated to Los Angeles back in the 1980s. And so as a low income first generation uh, person growing up in these neighborhoods, um, it was commonly known that if you live in housing that is usually subsidized by governmental programs, such as I think it's called Section 8 um, here in Los Angeles, it's more they're more prone to be living in industries that are nearby industries that are toxic. So this can look like through a variety of ways, such as like airports, train stations, um, you know, toxic facilities and all these other things that produce these toxic chemicals or toxic waste. And so... You know, for me growing up, I lived right across the street from six facilities that were known, obviously registered in the governmental website that produce some types of toxic chemicals that are emitted in the air. And so, you know, having go, having an elementary school right down the street from me, obviously every day, you know, it would be usually smoggy. And so, you know, that creates a lot of environmental health issues. And so... I, what I, from what I understood growing up, obviously at a young age, is that my parents never let me really go outside to play. It was more that they felt that it was safer to play inside or slash, you know, they didn't want to deal with, you know, the cloud or the smog. And so um, that was one case of, like, obviously injustices. But the other case is the fact that, you know, I live right next to a train station. And so um, it's different, right, of different subways and stuff, but it's commonly known in Los Angeles that we have the Metrolink and freight trains. And so freight trains obviously carry much more uh, pollution. Obviously, they create more noise pollution. And so noise pollution obviously has been correlated to the fact that it contributes to the degradation of your heart. And so over time, it is linked towards obviously high stress levels. It creates disruption in ecosystems, especially with animal species. And so 
you know, imagine just being waked up every day at 3 or 4 a.m. and then having the train pass by during the day for three times every day. So it was obviously pretty exhausting. And so it felt almost normalized of this, as if this community was designed this way or this is how life should have been. And so, you know, a lot of my anger and confusion came from the fact that why this wasn't the case in nearby other cities that had what you would say higher economic status than my own community. Growing up in an environment like this and facing these challenges, that's obviously what encouraged you to go and study environmental science. You went to the University of California, and I was just wondering, how did those experiences, how did your studies shape your desire to go on and do what you do now? And how did it change your opinion on what you thought about the environment as a kid? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, I think obviously, like, in high school, like, you know, my parents always instilled the fact that you need to go to higher education and so for better options for your life. And so um, I did it, but, you know, I had thought, you know, you need to get this, you know, degree to no be known as an environmentalist or a scientist. And so I think that's what academia obviously tells us. And so, you know, being in obviously an elitist institution, especially Berkeley, that upholds research spaces so much is the fact that, um, you know, it's very dangerous when you're just solely focusing on academic research being the most pristine or the most on top of everyone. And so it ignores the public concern. It ignores certain uh, community-based practice researches that may not be seen as quote-unquote scientific from academia because the fact that it upholds these types of values or institutions. And so I think for me what I really struggled a lot in college is having this conflicted feeling of the fact that what I'm learning doesn't necessarily directly apply to my community, mainly because these practices that are taught are usually very generalized. And so also the fact that too that a lot of these scientists and these professors that taught these environmental courses were all white and necessarily don't really talk about the huge interconnections of a lot of these topics. It was more about these topics being siloed within conservation. And so for me, it was about unlearning those processes too. And so developing all that research when I did research at school and also obviously the classes I took, I realized then after postgrad that I had so much of a wealth of knowledge and information and in that I don't believe in obviously the privatization of education. I believe in obviously um, open public access education or some form of way for people to get that knowledge. And so, you know, creating Queerbound Vegan essentially for me was a way for me to see how I would I would have wanted to learn these terms or I would have wanted someone to explain to this to me. Um, in my own community because that wasn't necessarily the case of what we had learned in elementary school. It was more about global warming, but it doesn't never really what built upon the interconnections between the two. So when you were studying, did you meet people who had a similar background to you? Did you mix with many people of color who were there for the same reasons as you, who were also a bit disenfranchised by how white and how ignorant the people who were teaching you were? Yeah, no, I definitely have was able to really connect with a lot of, you know, BIPOC folks throughout the environmental field, most especially some from L.A., actually. And so, you know, having, you know, I was involved in this group called the Students of Color Environmental Collective at Berkeley. And so it was a safe space for any BIPOC environmentalists and the environmental majors to really have some time to take to talk about their own experiences. We talked about environmental justice. We talked about, like, centering narratives outside of the West. And so... 
it was really important for me to cultivate that community because we realized collectively that although there wasn't that many of us existent in these major spaces, it was important the fact that our existence to rebel against these institutions that have continuously perpetuated white supremacy was an issue. And I think for many of us, we collectively agreed that this is not the way one should be learning. And so I think, you know, having that, you know, strong community of small groups of individuals really helped me, held me down during college. When you finish college, you have this wealth of knowledge. You've grown up around it. You've met all these people and learned all these incredibly scientific things. You've got much more of a knowledge about it than you had before going. And it was around this time that you started Alluvium magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, could you tell me a little about what that project was like? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I had actually graduated um, that senior year and I had a, my best friend actually, um, she was a year younger than me and was finishing up her environmental science degree. And so we had talked about, you know, about the intersections between creativity, arts, and environmentalism. And so we looked, we Googled, like, you know, um, people of color environmental magazine, and we couldn't really find anything. We found, like, a few articles, like, from Sierra Club or, like, Patagonia featuring, like, you know, um, black and brown hikers or, you know, um, outdoor people, which is awesome. But we didn't really find that. And so Alluvia stemmed from the fact that we wanted to really showcase a publication where people like us who came from certain communities or had experiences with environmental justices or environmental advocates or activists is that we gave them that space to explain their own obviously notions of environmentalism and how they felt and what their experiences like were about environmentalism and so <clears throat> it's really important for us to see at a young age to see people who look like us because right off the bat obviously growing up myself I didn't really see educators like me was usually like white scientists or like other you know cis straight males you know and it wasn't really reflective of my own identity did you find that it was well received did you realize that once you started writing the magazine that there were suddenly all these people who came out of obscurity to really support what you were doing yeah i think you know there was really good positive feedback i think a lot of people were like you know, thanking us for creating this. And it's no doubt that it's a lot of work to create a magazine. It took almost a year. And so obviously it was so draining, obviously trying to find funds to, to get that started. And so, you know, it was really good that people were able to come to our launch party and really feel so motivated and empowered to really feel like, you know, this is a space that we're cultivating, not for us, but for people of color. And so I think, you know, our next, our, you know, our future steps would have been like, you know, constantly creating that dialogue with future environmentalists and advocating for the youth to understand that we are also there with them and that they're not alone in their journey and that we exist too, obviously, and we're here to support them in any way or mentor them. And so I think some of the negatives is that people were like, why does this need to be included? Like people, we should, we should highlight all people, but you know, the argument that I've always you know, argued with is that most magazines and creative industry too, I've talked about this, is that the diversity representation within um, people, black, indigenous people of color in magazines is very low compared to those that are featured that are generally white. And so this obviously comes to issues of like, why is this the issue or why is this so late to be addressed? And so I think many people have, of course have had these conversations and it's so hard to have them. One of the things that you do a lot 
on Instagram is share terminology that you've learned or you feel that other sh people should learn. And I was wondering if you could choose one or two of your favorite or your most interesting terms that you shared and tell my listeners why they should know them and what they mean. Yeah, definitely. One is environmental racism. So the way I define it is basically the slow harm or death inflicted by, um, by corporations or policies um, that were designated to disproportionately harm frontline communities that are generally known as black indigenous people of color. And so environmental racism, what you can say is that it's not the, you won't physically see it. It's a long-term um, health degradation to your body. And so think of something that's slowly creeping behind you while obviously hurting you over years. And so it contributes to adversity of health issues. And the reason why environmental racism is often controversial is that people obviously blame other things like well you can be eating this or you could be doing this and that creates all these issues and so I think it's most importantly recognized to know that anyone exposed to harmful chemicals or pollutants over a certain time period of life will be permanently affected whether it be obviously physically or mentally um, those damages are done. The second term I really love I think that you'd love this is um, a professor named Glenn Albert um, that coined a lot of environmental terms, this is known as Tierra Trauma. And so the intersection between climate change and mental health are obviously very important, but haven't really b done much research in it in academic sciences. And so Tierra Trauma looks at the fact that the, the sudden shock or what you would call the effect that one has when they're currently or in the moment seeing the impact of the climate crisis destroy their community, whether it be through natural disasters, whether it be through construction, gentrification. Um, Tierra trauma obviously is for those that are usually in the frontline communities that, you know, outside of the West here in the United States or in the UK, like you are seeing the fact that their lands, their own communities are being ripped away by the climate crisis. This can also be um, obviously applied to wildfires too that have been happening. When you when you experience Tierra trauma, it's different from eco-anxiety because eco-anxiety is saying that you you know worry about the future, but Tierra trauma is that um, internalized environmental trauma that will, you will forever be in your thoughts and you don't necessarily know how to process it. And so if you look at victims who have lost their homes in wildfires, like they look devastated of course, but no one really knows the long-term effects of just seeing the climate disaster. One thing I've noticed about your social media presence is that it is very positive and you're talking about things that are devastating and that affect all of us at varying levels but only really in a negative way. And I want to know how you manage to stay so positive when you're surrounded by bad news and statistics and downward pointing graphs and all these kinds of things that drive people crazy. So how do you, what's your way of keeping positive? You know, I think for me is the fact of my own intentionality and positionality in this environmental movement. And so I think for me, what I will always preach is the fact that I love learning and writing as much as it is painful to talk about it, but I do find it healing and rewarding to be able to really share these experiences and to empower one with those tools because you know as you know starting from my original narrative of where I grew up in is that the fact that many of us don't really know the words sometimes and necessarily I think that this is from obviously academics is that you know you need to know these terminologies to understand but I think 
feelings are valid, feelings are words. And so I think that the way I've been able to stay positive is the fact that the re- I created a community, I wanted to cultivate a community that people are able to learn alongside each other, within myself too, le- learning from them. And so I think for me, um, you know, the word, like I, I stayed positive mainly because the fact that I've understood over years of anger, angriness and like confusion and all these mixed emotions is that I can use these types of energies to create work that is, um, you know, what you would call controversial or, you know, people would say like, this is very like extreme. And I say to them, like, it's not extreme, it's the reality. And so I think my content is for level one people who are just interested in environmentalism because it goes deeper than what I talk about. And so I think my exposure to writing these posts about terminologies, it's just a glimpse to give you what you can expect. But I think everyone has their own journey to delve deeper into those words or those feelings and thoughts. And that's where I think one can decide whether or not what they decide to do. And I think any type of emotion is valid, of course. On Who's Flying the Plane, we like to give our guests the chance to recommend a person or a project or an artwork or anything of that nature that they would name as their hidden gem. So what would you like to point us in the direction of to name as your hidden gem? I would say like my hidden gem, not as a hidden gem since they're more publicized on my end, but it's my best friend, um, Christy Drebin, who is at brown girl underscore green. And so she's an environmental Filipina um, environmental activist and advocate and she obviously went to college with me and so we both come from I guess similar experiences and different ways of what we think and so having someone there growing up with me in college and post-grad what I was able to live with her is that the fact that we were able to hold ourselves together as eco-partners right one that loves the environment and so we we're constantly talking about that and so I think she would be my hidden gem because for so long in college within environmental classes I felt so lost or you know I wanted to talk more about environmentalism but I never really found any like one person that is like deeply passionate that like they can talk about it for hours like me and so I think she's one of my hidden gems for sure. How can we follow you on social media and how can we get involved with what you do support what you do um, yeah, just give us all the links. Yeah, I think the way the way to <clears throat> support me is like I you can follow me at, at Career Brown Vegan on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and check out my website. I think that there's some really interesting blog posts that I've written about uh, more sustainability or environmentalism that delves deeper into the post. And so, um, yeah, definitely check that out. And I think too, like if you're listening to this, like spread the knowledge, right? Share your resources, share your Um, educational experiences with others and just empower people around you all right thanks a lot for talking to me Azarius yeah no thank you so much again Mm -hmm.